My name is Jay Miller, and today we're going to be talking about the films you should be watching and how to watch them. Okay, we're in the studio today with my colleague, Joel Mayward, who's an assistant professor of theology. Christian Ministries, Christian Theology Ministries. and the Arts. So he does it all. And we're discussing his new book, The Dardan Brothers Cinematic Parables, Integrating Theology, Philosophy, and Film, which just came out. Joel is a scholar of all those things, theology, philosophy, film, and also really interested in um, practical applications and how that connects to how we live our lives and how we experience the world. Um, but today we're going to be talking about his book, talking about film and how we engage it. And Joel starts off his book by talking about this really interesting idea of us living in a cinematic age. Um, and Joel, I think it's right to say that you celebrate that cinematic age, the fact that um, so much of what we encounter in terms of media is now film. Our newspapers run film. Um, we can watch film on our phones a lot of times. Um, we're trying to be reached by film in all kinds of ways. And as I was thinking about that living in a cinematic age, it made me think of another narrative out there that we also, that that cinematic age is in a certain sense, a time of cinematic decline, whether that's um, seeing the fact that we attend films much less in theaters than usual. So we're either watching on phones or we're watching at home, um, or even that the kind of films we might see in a theater are kind of retreads of superhero movies or remakes. And so because of some of those developments, um, certain sort of cultural commentators can have a kind of pessimistic view of what film and cinema is like broadly in the culture today. And I was curious, um, what your take is on that narrative and how would you position your work in relationship to that decline of film idea? Yeah. So there's um, kind of an ongoing debate or argument uh, around filmmaker Martin Scorsese, mm -hmm. who made some comments a, a while ago now about the Marvel Cinematic Universe and how that wasn't necessarily cinema, which led a, a lot of fans of Marvel to be upset with Scorsese and then back and forth. And the argument around there, I think, is indicative of just kind of the larger conversation around what cinema is. Is cinema this strictly theatrical experience uh, that you're going to a movie theater to watch it uh, for, you know, 120 minutes and then leave the theater after you've, you know, paid your ticket, eat your popcorn, all that kind of stuff. Um, or, and this is something I've explored a bit in the book, is cinema something that is even broader than that. And it's, it's just the larger moving image. So even now, right, we're being recorded, there will be people watching this as a moving image, whether that's on their screen on their iPad or their laptop or on their phone, um, that cinema itself as a form of communication, uh, as a technology, as a formal tool, uh, and ultimately as an art form as well, that, that expands that definition quite a bit, right? Um, so now we can see cinema as being more than just a movie that I watch in a theater, but it's also something that I do see on an airplane or watch on my laptop at home. Uh, watching my living room. And so on the one hand, I see that as a positive thing, that cinema is everywhere. Uh, and we're being able to engage in cinema in new and unique ways. And there's uh, just creativity that's come about because of that. And particularly even in the COVID pandemic, where there were limitations on 
you know, meetings and communication, right? We, the Zoom call um, becomes, it's a, it's a form of cinema actually, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this moving image, we're connecting with one another, I can see you, you can see me uh, through this moving image frame, the camera that captures us and then communicates uh, information and even presence in some ways between us, um, that all those things are, I think, exciting, I guess, or there's something exciting about the expansion of this technology uh, and technological art form and the way that it can expand into the wider horizons of our world. So there are more bad movies or bad films in the sense, both content wise and just aesthetic, like you said, uh, just reproductions of reproductions, essentially. But there's also just there's more good out there, too, and more ways to access the good. Uh, there are more streaming services that um, allow us to be able to see films that we might not have been able to see before. Were they just limited to only being able to see in theaters and in art house, you know, sectors or in other countries, right? Um, now I can see cinema from all over the world streaming into my home. Uh, and so there's just a wide variety of opportunities that come with that that I think are more positive than negative. Yeah, I think we've all had that experience maybe of logging onto Netflix or maybe whatever streaming service we use and feeling like, oh, I can't find anything or this doesn't look interesting yeah. or like um, that kind of experience of not feeling that there's much substantial there. Um, or we sort of valorized the idea of or normalized the idea of like binge watching, you know, and just yeah. kind of checking yeah, it out yeah. and like that kind of thing. And so um, we all know that culture. But what I hear you saying is that, you know, along with that more dominant mode of engaging with film or television, even there are also so these other options where that's, you know, I think of like the criterion sort of streaming service, yes. which maybe we can talk about at the end of the episode ways to kind of expand your, um, kind of film viewing or even something like canopy that a lot of public mm -hmm. libraries have our university library has, that gives you just a lot of access to other stuff that you just never would have been able to get it even block blockbuster, right, absolutely. um, that kind of thing. Um, another context I want to put on the table along with the cinematic age is what you talk about in the book as a post-secular age. Um, cause I think in some ways those are the two main contexts you're interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, what does it mean to call something post-secular and then how do you see yourself as engaging in the con conversation about what it means to live in a post-secular age? Yeah. So the post-secular um, and post-secularism is one of those terms that generates a wide variety of debate, right? So there's not necessarily one clear definition of it, but the, the different philosophers and theorists, political theorists, social theorists that I draw upon um, are understanding the post-secular as kind of being in between uh, this so-called secular either non-religious or even anti-religious sphere, and then the more sacred or overtly directly religious sphere, that there's this kind of in-between space that's a bit more fluid, a bit more dynamic, uh, and more open to the possibility of this both and. Uh, and so we see um, Weber made this comment, you know, back in the early 20th century about the disenchantment of the age, right? Mm -hmm. So that, you know, science the enlightenment, all these things that we live in this disenchanted age. And then the rise of secularism, the rise of modernity and all that stuff. Um, and then in, in post-modernity, in the same way with post-secularism, I think, um, people were, became more aware that, well, maybe we're not quite as disenchanted as we think. Uh, maybe there's actually some things about spiritual experiences. Uh, maybe there is a sense of transcendence that I can't just explain through 
um, scientific means uh, or my own reason, but I'm not necessarily beholden to an institutional religion. Mm -hmm. So open to the possibility of transcendence and maybe even the divine, but not necessarily in a way that's in this strict um, religious institutionalized sort of way. And so the post-secular is that I'm using it when it comes to post-secular cinema is exploring um, those particular films and filmmakers who are navigating this kind of in-between space, this no man's land. Uh, it's not quite secular. It's not quite religious. Uh, it's bringing both of those to the table and then refusing to land on one side or the other. And I think there's just some really interesting aspects about that of uh, the, the kind of polyvalence, the multiple interpretations that can come with that. Uh, and this even just openness to uh, resisting kind of the strict binary between here's secular over here mm -hmm. and here's sacred and religious over here, that the sacred and the profane actually might have more in common than we might think. And so the particular filmmakers that I look at in my book, the Dardenne brothers, Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne, are operating in that kind of post-secular sphere, mm -hmm. uh, drawing upon religious traditions and religious stories, but ostensibly without some sort of um, faith commitment and yet there's still an openness to the possibility of the divine or the transcendent kind of breaking in uh, the mystery of that. Uh, mm. I think they're more open to that and not coming down concrete on one side or the other saying like there's absolutely no God or yes, of course, it's a, there's a God and he's this Christian God, the triune God of um, their, their previous Catholic faith and upbringing. It's mm. kind of this openness of, well, I'm not so sure, but I'm open to the possibility of transcendence. And yet I don't know that I want to land back in this strict uh, religious institution. So I, I think those kind of spaces um, that cinema, there's just tons of possibilities for what cinema can do in those spaces. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, so we have a cinematic age. We have a post-secular age. Um I would say that in your book, you're saying not just that cinema can do things, but that almost cinema is like an essential way of getting into that kind of in-between space. So um, what do you see as the unique capacities of cinema in our age that we're living in? And also, can you talk to a little bit about kind of your take on, there are a lot of ways to interpret cinema. cinema. So what's your take on um, your theory of film and theology. Yeah. So I, I propose an idea that I call theocinematics, which is bringing together film and theology. Really it's film as theology. Um, right. So in the larger conversation, the academic conversation on theology and film, it is a theology and film that these are two separate spheres, um, that can have dialogue with one another, can talk with one another and maybe have some mutual contributions to, to bring, uh, in, they can better understand one another. And I'd like to blur those lines even more that film as theology or theology as film, that cinema and theology actually have more in common than not. Uh, and so the melding and molding together of these two um, is what I'm trying to explore in the book with the Darden brothers films, but even just wider, like how cinema can express and explore the divine, the transcendent of who God is in a way that isn't just limited to linguistic word-based propositions or doctrines, mm. um, but exploring who God is through image and through sounds and through movements 
through montage, through mise-en-scene. Uh, and so I'm, I'm inviting the reader of the book to imagine what theology might look like cinematically, not just what cinema mm -hmm. might look like theologically. And so often it's gone that one direction. So theologians like myself looking at cinema and then drawing out the theology from it, almost like it's some sort of object or tool that they're using. Mm -hmm. And I'd rather bring those more into an equal, an equal share. Yeah. Uh, and I think the post-secular allows that uh, in that kind of, uh, that open space to be able to say, maybe there's a bit more both and than either or, mm -hmm. and how can we actually break down some of those traditional boundaries that have been placed up, uh, between these two spheres and find a bit more commonality and maybe even um, they share more in common than they even could have ever imagined if they're mm -hmm. willing to actually break down some of those barriers. Yeah, it's really quite a bold thesis, and that's I, I yeah. enjoyed that part of the book because you really do take on, it seems like a very broad swath of people who thought about film, people who've talked about theology, not in, in a very charitable way, I, I should so. say, yeah. but um, certainly charitable. But um, you are trying to do something different. You have, I wonder if we could go a little bit deeper into some of the ways you see um theologians or even film critics of a very theological bent or maybe even like lay pastors or just Christians who talk about film, mm -hmm. some of the ways that can go wrong. Like you have this great phrase of theological imperialism yes. in its approach to film. What is that? And what are other kind of pathologies of the way we can approach film theologically? Yeah. So theological imperialism is, is what I was describing earlier, basically a theologian or a pastor. So in my background too, I was a youth and young adults pastor for a, a dozen years. And I, I'm guilty of doing this, of seeing a film and then using it as an illustration for my own theology and like quite literally a sermon illustration, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it doesn't necessarily matter what the formal aspects of that film were, um, whether they were good or bad. That really wasn't, it was just an avatar for my own ideas that I wanted to bring to the table and communicate to others about theology or on the flip side, um, and Christian film criticism, um, has a long history of this, of kind of just looking at the content of a film and judging it by, is it good or bad? According to my particular quote unquote worldview, mm -hmm. uh, which usually amounts to counting the number of swear words or number of sex scenes, uh, and then deeming it bad based on if, if it reaches some sort of limit uh, or if it doesn't communicate a particular thing that I agree with as a Christian in my own understanding of what the Bible says or what my theology is. Um, and I'd like to open up the possibility that maybe cinema has more good to say than bad, um, at least in certain films, and that cinema actually, if we humble ourselves from our pedestal of theology, it's not a hierarchical view of theology being up here and cinemas down here and we can look down upon it, but a more egalitarian view mm -hmm. that there's some sort of mutual understanding here that maybe a filmmaker actually has something to say about God that a theologian or a pastor can learn from that film or that filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And it's not just this one way. Um, so, so often even in, in the conversation of dialogue or the, the methodology of dialogue, the conversation or so-called dialogue would always begin and end with the theologian. Yeah. So the theologian would begin and bring their their ideas to the table, see 
the film through those ideas or through that lens and then come back to theology as kind of completing the conversation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm much more interested in humbly listening to a film, mm -hmm. receiving a film, um, even, yeah, practicing hospitality, I think, is mm -hmm. part of this. Um, as pastors, as theologians, really just as Christians in general, mm -hmm. um, how can a Christian practice hospitality and receive a film for what it is, just like they would hopefully receive a human being, a person with generosity and with love and right. with grace and with patience, that I'd be willing to receive a film for what it is and see it and experience it for what it is, uh, rather than bring my own understanding of what it should be or how I can use that film to better illustrate my ideas. Just like I would not want to just place my own ideas of a person like, well, I, if Jay isn't operating the way that I hope Jay to operate or think or say the things I wanted to think that I would try to manipulate you to use right. you to get to my own ideas or positions, um, that wouldn't be a relationship. Right. Uh, it would be manipulation. And so I want the relationship between theology and film to actually be a relationship. Uh, and maybe one again, that's, and maybe this is a rather erotic image, but one that's uh, more conjoined or connected. Right. Um, that theology and film actually, again, can be brought together as one. Yeah. So I wonder if you could just give us a quick discussion, doesn't necessarily have to be quick even, um, of how to think about a film formally. Yeah. You know, if, if most times we go to film, we walk out a theater and think, oh, I like the story. Oh, I like the action. Oh, I like this character. Can you take us a little bit deeper into kind of, if we're kind of to take up your mode of approaching film, especially theologically, if theologians haven't appreciated the formal aspects of film, what does it mean to appreciate film in a formal way? Yeah, yeah. I think, first of all, it means just learning what film is. Mm. Uh, and so being able to identify and understand what is editing or montage? What does mise-en-scene mean? Why do shots matter? Like, what is a shot? What kind of understanding the formal dimensions, so cinematography and acting, narrative structures, mm -hmm. those types of things, and being a learner. So having that humility and curiosity to learn what is film uh, in and of itself. Um, and then I think that allows or brings about a better appreciation because you're able to see more of what a film is supposed to be or what it's actually presenting or how it was constructed. Um, so a film critic that I love, uh, Roger Ebert, um, would talk about it's not just what a film is about, but it's how a film is about it. That's the significance, mm -hmm. the formal dimensions, um, the aesthetic qualities of a film and learning how it was constructed and how it was made. Not necessarily in a sense of like, oh, I need to go behind the scenes documentary and, and know it um, like you used to get on DVDs and Blu-rays, like this kind of behind the scenes documentary of right. how the movie was made. Right. Um, but just having a better appreciation and understanding of, of the construction of film and filmmaking. Um, and then I think also... A, a broader um, palette, I suppose, to use a, a culinary image, right? So if, if my diet is just reduced to certain types of films um, that are the equivalent of, you know, just I'm eating one kind of meal and mm -hmm. only that kind of meal. Um, it's just superhero movies or it's just Star Wars movies or it's just something I found on Netflix. Um, though Netflix actually has a wide variety of things that are available if you know where to look. Mm -hmm. Um, but if I go to a buffet and I only ever just like scoop a bunch of macaroni and cheese on my plate and that's it, 
and I miss out on all these other amazing foods that I could eat. Um, so what I'm trying to say with this kind of weird food image is to expand your tastes, expand mm. your horizons of the kinds of things that you would actually choose to watch. And so watching films that are from another country uh, that are in an, a language that is not your own native language uh, can be incredibly meaningful, beneficial. There's, there is every nation in the world has its own cinema in the sense that there is a, a kind of national or cultural cinema mm -hmm. for that particular country or nation. Um, and so you can learn a lot and grow in your empathy of that particular culture, uh, but also just discover a new amazing films and art forms that you never would have explored before if you were just limited to, well, I only watch movies that are in English, or I only mm -hmm. watch rom-coms, or I will only watch you know action movies starring such and such. Um, and again, those aren't bad necessarily. I was a Top Gun Maverick this, uh, last summer and it was amazing. Um, there's Tom Cruise flying a plane and it's awesome. Um, but if that's all I'm ever eating or consuming in my diet, it's not a well-balanced or healthy diet. So expanding one's tastes in cinema and learning, uh, that there are other ways to watch film rather mm -hmm. than just kind of mindless consumerism, yeah. but actually as a more attentive and receptive, um, even in a, I would equate it almost even like in a spiritual discipline sort of way. Mm -hmm. um, some of these films take discipline to watch, right? Like it's yeah. a three hour slow film that it's a Friday night. I don't necessarily want to just watch cause I'm going to fall asleep. Uh, I just kind of want to check out. But if there are spaces or times where that might be beneficial to go and watch that film, um, it can actually be, a, again, a spiritual experience or a productive experience. There's a group of mid-century French writers about film that really seem to be a key inspiration for you. Yeah. And so I wonder if you could unpack a little bit all those things, both what does it mean for you to have a phenomenological approach to film, mm -hmm. and then who... Um, talk a little bit about your muses a little bit, both those French um, mid-century writers and then also why Paul Ricoeur is so central to your project. Yeah. Oh, so many things to talk about there. Yeah. But phenomenology, I mean, at it's basic at its core is about the value of experience, paying attention to one's own experience in every every capacity of that. So even my experience of this conversation that we're having right now, right? Paying attention to my body, paying attention to the perception that I have of you, um, the things that I'm saying myself, uh, and just having a, a greater awareness and understanding of what an experience is, and then being able to articulate that in a way um, that is quasi-objective, uh, and yet still mm -hmm. entirely subjective. It's trying to make objective a subjective experience and try to describe that in a way um, that is robust and um, multi-dimensional, multifaceted, uh, and paying attention to the particulars of all those different aspects of an experience. And so bringing that to bear on film, um, yeah, some of the earliest um, phenomenological approaches to film theory and film criticism come from uh, these French uh, film critics from the 1940s, 1950s. Um, Andre Bazin is arguably the father of film theory and film studies. So a French film critic in, uh, who founded uh, the journal Cahiers du Cinema, um, mm. but was also kind of this heterodox 
uh, Roman Catholic uh, who believed in God, um, worshipped as a Catholic, but then also had these kind of uh, stranger, outside-of-the-box thinking uh, when it came to certain doctrines and certain understandings of how God worked. Um, but he would see and view the experience of cinema as this sacred or even sacramental space. Um, that if God is at work in reality around us, that the cinema itself, like the film itself, has captured on camera God's interaction in our world. Uh, if God is here and present with us, that somehow the film is, is um, capturing God, which sounds impossible. And that's the thing that he was trying to describe even as mm -hmm. how is it that this technological uh, apparatus that we have of a camera uh, able to basically record reality itself, uh, including potentially divine or spiritual realities, right? Uh, and then how can we uh, see the experience of cinema as something that is more than just consumeristic, um, but something that is potentially transcendent or divine uh, or sacramental? Yeah, as you're talking about Bazan, I was thinking about another someone else you pull in, Siegfried Krakauer, yes. um, who you talk about as the redemption of material reality, yes. right, the of his work too. So there's also a German, you know, that kind of aspect too is really interesting kind of thinker. Um, what about Rakur? Who is he and why Why not do a project just straight out of mid-century France? Yeah. Um, why bring in Rakur into this? Yeah, so yeah, Bazan... Um, and Agel and Ifra are in the world of film. Ricoeur is arguably in the world of philosophy, and then I'm a theologian. And so I really am trying to integrate those three things, theology, philosophy, and film. And Bazan and his pals are blurring those lines between theology and film. And Ricoeur, in his own unique way as a philosopher, was also blurring the lines between philosophy and theology. So he's a philosopher. He always says, I'm a philosopher. I'm not a biblical scholar. I'm not a theologian. And yet would do things like biblical hermeneutics, um, would write about um, the signs and symbols of evil and drawing upon Christian tradition to be mm -hmm. able to do that, um, is navigating the questions of time and narrative uh, and looking to the Bible uh, to be able to bolster his arguments uh, and your own experience of reading sacred scriptures, like how that would be, from a phenomenological sense, revelatory. Um, so how do these texts work in a revelatory way? Mm. And he was really interested in all those different things. And I just love Ricoeur because he, is a, he has a curiosity about him mm. um, that I, I found him to be a good, I don't know, academic mentor or dialogue partner for myself uh, as somebody who's interested in just a wide variety of things. Um, like I, I don't fit in nice and neatly into one, I don't know, academic sphere, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. like I'm this misfit that loves theology, but also loves film, but also loves uh, philosophy and then just the arts in general. And then I'm also like this youth pastor. So yeah. it's like <laughs> none of those things necessarily fit together. Yeah. And I find... Um, I guess a companion in Ricoeur there too, where he's this kind of misfit. He's uh, arguably a continental philosopher, but he also is respected in the analytic tradition. Biblical scholars draw from him. Theologians draw from him. Christians and non-Christians alike mm -hmm. love him and hate him. And there's something about that that I find really helpful in that his framework and understanding of particularly just texts 
and how to read a text mm -hmm. uh, and the phenomenology of reading itself mm -hmm. and what that brings about in interpreting a text uh, translated to film I think is incredibly productive. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot that can be going on there that I, I, Ricoeur, I think, has been underutilized in just film studies in general. Mm -hmm. um, because he would write about poetry and he'd write about literature. Um, but if we take his ideas and place them in the realm of cinema, uh, both his ideas about literature and texts and reading, but also his ideas about revelation and God, uh, then we there's all sorts of incredible possibilities that are there. So mm -hmm. I really and, like it. And in terms of translating that hermeneutic into, or putting it to work, you know, the kind of ultimate aim of this book is, you know, a very extensive reading of the filmography of the Dardan brothers. Mm -hmm. Um, these uh, pair of Belgian filmmakers, they've been making film for a long time. Yes. The, the 1970s when they yeah, started? Yeah, 1970s is when they started. And still making film today. Yeah, so they had yeah, a film. Yeah, you end the book by referencing they're like filming now or yeah, more filming film this year. Yeah, the film Tori and Lokita uh, premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in May this year, and it still hasn't come to the U.S. Uh, on a wider distribution. It's played a couple um, festivals in the, in the U.S. But So I have not seen Tori and Lokita yet, and I very much want to. Yeah. Um, but that's the one the one film in the book that I don't necessarily get into much detail because I haven't sure. seen it yet. Yeah. So why for you with this phenomenological, theocinematic, um post-secular approach to film? What about the Dardan Brothers films? We're not going to get into the films. We don't want to do spoilers. Um, and we all know most of our listeners probably haven't seen them, mm -hmm. but um what generally about their approach to film and their style of filmmaking works well with your hermeneutic? Yeah. So, so the first film of theirs that I ever watched was called The Sun. Um, came out in 2002, and I, I got it at a rental store when video rental stores were a thing. Oh, yeah. And I watched it in my apartment, and, uh, and I was just by myself watching it on DVD. And felt like I had this kind of transcendent or spiritual experience by the end of it. Um, the ending of the film, and I won't give it away what happens. Uh, it's about a, a man, a carpenter, uh, who takes a, a teenage boy kind of under his wing, a troubled teenage boy. And you realize over the course of the film that these two actually have more of a relationship um, than you might imagine. And that there's this kind of climax toward what seems to be leading to violence. Um, but then potentially doesn't. Um, it leads seemingly to grace and forgiveness. And when I watched that film and the way that it was structured and, and the way that the Dardens make movies, um, just realized that I was, I realized I'd had this spiritual or, you know, religious experience watching a film that arguably had no religious content in it whatsoever. So how did they do that? Mm -hmm. What did they do in their filmmaking that could create an environment for that to happen? Uh, and so I looked at, yeah, the formal dimensions of how they make films. Um, and so they, they similar to what Bazan appreciated about Italian neorealism, uh, the Dardens make what I call transcendent realism. Um, and so they use on-location scenes in Belgium, in the town that they grew up in, where they were raised in Sereng or Liège. So all their films are set there. Mm. Um, they're all set in kind of the, I don't know, the margins of society. Uh, all their characters are kind of down and out, working class. Um, the people that 
the rest of society has forgotten. And uh, they're very human figures. Uh, the, the Dardans use handheld camera work and stick very, very close to these human beings, uh, like incredibly close to the point where sometimes it's like uh, they've been critiqued or criticized for just making films about the backs of their characters' heads because mm. uh, they're just following their characters around with mm -hmm. the camera mm. uh, as they navigate their world. And so it's very ordinary people doing very ordinary things, and yet there's this extraordinariness about it in the way that the, the Dardens have filmed it that brings about this transcendent spiritual kind of an experience. Um, and this is where Rakur comes in for me, um, that Rakur looks at um, the genre, the literary genre of parable in the Bible mm. uh, and sees that there's this ordinariness about these stories. And again, ostensibly lacking in theological or religious content, right? So there was a man and he's walking to Jericho and he's beaten up by robbers. And one guy passes him by, a priest passes him by, and then the Samaritan comes, saves him, takes him to the inn, pays for it. And that's the end of the story. And somehow that's supposed to illustrate the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, or at least generate ideas in our minds, tease us into active thought about what what is Jesus talking about here? And how does this apply in some sort of religious or moral way? Mm -hmm. um, and the Dardens in a similar way are taking ordinary stories, ordinary people um, on location, uh, these real places in Belgium uh, and crafting these parables uh, about what life is like in our contemporary world um, for the down and out and the, the lost and forgotten and the people in the margins. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, using the cinematic form to help us pay attention, uh, to help us as the viewer to be more aware of what's going on in our world and hopefully to grow in empathy uh, and grow in our, even in our moral dimension, that we become better people for having watched these films uh, because we become more aware of the moral or ethical dilemmas uh, that people are going through and can relate to those people that we see on the screen. Um, so the way the Dardens make these films uh, brings about that kind of both religious and ethical questioning in the audience, mm -hmm. whether you're religious or, or otherwise. Uh, and so I've seen film critics who would identify themselves as being atheists or even anti-religious say, I was moved by the sun, by the ending of the sun, and I cannot explain why. But it was less of a film that I watched and more of this kind of event that happened to me. Mm -hmm in watching this movie mm -hmm. and left me in tears or left me incredibly moved. And I'm trying to understand how to explain that. And so I come in as a theologian and be like, well, I, I think there's actually in theology and philosophy. And again, back to Ricoeur, there's these resources that are there to be able to describe why this might be happening mm -hmm. uh, and how parables um, generate theological thought in our imaginations. Yeah, that made a lot of sense to me, the kind of both the parable approach, but also just kind of that experience of film. I think most people can think I like I like to think most people can think of a time where they watched a film or maybe when they watched an analog of like the theater, which isn't the same. And if we had more time, I'd be interested to talk about like what's the difference between a yeah. theodramatic and a theocinematic. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I don't know if we'll get into that today. Um, but I think many of us know the experience of being moved by watching something. 
Um, and I can think of films like uh, filmmakers you go to, like Tarkovsky, Andrei Tarkovsky, a mm-hmm. Russian filmmaker who kind of is working out of an Eastern Orthodox tradition, um, or Terrence Malick, who's working out of a Christian tradition, or even a, a, a filmmaker like King Hu, who's making uh, martial arts movies um, in the second half of the 20th century um, in Taiwan. And so it's working with kind of a Buddhist backdrop. Mm-hmm. I can think of watching films from all those filmmakers who can kind of bring about what you're talking about, what you call transcendent realism, right? That experience of um, what we think of as transcendence through an encounter through the encounter with the ordinary or the real that a film stages. And what that brings up for me is a question of like, how far can this hermeneutic travel of, um, can I watch a superhero movie this way and have a transcendent? Like, is it about just what a movie does in terms of the material experience of watching a movie does this? Is it the attitude I bring as a viewer? Mm. Is it like, do you have to have like someone who's adjacent to some sort of religious or theological tradition? And because even if, even if the Durdan brothers you're saying aren't making Christian films or Christian context, yeah. you do draw attention to their own Catholic upbringing yes. and the way that infuses it. So, and they are overtly drawing from yeah certain religious uh, stories. So even the, the son, the movie, the son is drawing on Genesis 22 and Abraham and Isaac and that whole sacrifice story that's going on there. Yeah. They're influenced by that, but they're not making some sort of movie about Abraham and Isaac. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So my question is to what extent is the hermeneutic you're proposing kind of built for a particular type of film? Yeah. And to what extent can it be generalized to kind of almost a total hermeneutic for approaching all of film or even cinema? Yeah. Uh, I mean, could people out there be watching this podcast on YouTube and having a transcendent experience listening to, you know, well, you maybe. and I witty repartee. Yeah. Like this might be a life changing thing to be able to watch this podcast for them. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Um, no, I do think there are limitations. First of all, I think particularly around the form of parable or the genre of parable mm. that not all films are parables, mm. uh, just like not all stories, literary stories yeah. are parables. Um, and it's, kind, so of it's a, kind of just a genre limit. You're saying different genres do different things. Yeah. And so parables, how they operate and how they function, there are definitely movies that are not parables. And I make this point in the book that like the genre of fantasy, uh, the genre of the musical, that these things that are largely mm, non-realistic sure. yes, um, okay. that we don't see hobbits right. and elves. Uh, we typically don't break out in song and dance numbers in our everyday lives. Right. right? So if you're watching a musical like singing in the rain or La La Land, um, you know, unless you and I just had a tap dance routine right here. And yeah. even then that would seem like strange or out of the ordinary. Yes. Right. So those aren't parables per se, but the larger framework of theocinematics and understanding blurring those lines between theology and film, I do think um, does apply to superhero movies or uh, the things that I might be just watching over television even. So beyond cinema, but watching TV shows and having a transcendent experience through that. Um, so I do, I do think that the theocinematic framework or I don't know if I want to call it a hermeneutic yet, um, mm. but just the, the mindset or paradigm of trying to see film and theology as being more equals or partners um, 
can expand to uh, those different kinds of films. And so if somebody does have uh, a transcendent experience watching a superhero film or a rom-com uh, or a TV show, and I know that I've had those, uh, I've, I can mm-hmm. think of, it's not just art house films or these, you know, ostensibly like these are very serious films. Uh, so one of the most moving things that ever happened to me was watching a movie called Philomena, which is a, a movie that, it was a best picture nominee came out a few years ago about a woman who it's almost like a buddy comedy, uh, a woman who is looking for her son who was given up for adoption by the Catholic mm. church. Uh, and she goes with, uh, so Judy Dench is the woman. And then Steve Coogan plays this atheist, uh, reporter, the snotty Oxford educated British reporter. And she's like this, you know, down to earth Catholic woman, uneducated. And they go on this trip to go find, her son. Right. Mm -hmm. And as I watched that movie, so I'm adopted. Mm -hmm. Um, and to make a very long story short, that, that prompted something in me to go find my own birth mother. Mm. Um, and I really do feel like God spoke through that filmic experience Mm -hmm. is Philomena a parable. Not necessarily. Is it like a good film or a great film? I mean, it was nominated for best picture. So somebody thought it was, but it's, it's pretty forgotten by most people, like mm-hmm. even for being a best picture nominee. Um, it's kind of a mid-level, yeah, drama comedy that mm-hmm. is is fine. And yet somehow God showed up in that viewing for me on my living room couch, mm-hmm. um, not in a theater, right? Uh, and it was something that quite literally changed my entire life. Um, and so those types of experiences, I'm very interested in why and how cinema seems to be a revelatory medium or form and how and why people have those types of um, deeply moving experiences um, and how those cinematic art forms help us to try to just make sense of our world too, mm-hmm. um, just as human beings trying to navigate what we're going through. Yeah. One of my, it makes me think of a quote um, by the sort of, mid-century um catholic writer and monk thomas merton Mm. he one of the things he says about prayer and we haven't really talked about prayer i don't think you talk about prayer in the book a lot but i think in some ways you're talking about almost a prayerful approach to film yes one of the things he says is in his book contemplative prayer is that prayer is not a psychological trick but a theological grace yes and so i think what what i hear you saying in that what reminds me of that is that like there's no film there's no like xyz that's going to give you a transcendent experience. You know, you can't just like put Ter- Terrence Malick on loop and like, you know, commune with the universe. Uh, it can kind of break in at you at any time. Mm-hmm. And you could watch a lot of these films and not get what you're going after. Because ultimately, I think you'd also say the point isn't to go like transcendence hunting, you know, with yeah. film. Because I think part of it too is like in the Jar of Danvers, it's about, you know, learning to appreciate the ordinary yes. without a need for like, that transcendence kick. In fact, I think maybe what we could say is a problem with contemporary mainstream film and the superhero movie is it just giving you that same high over and over again, you know, and that that's not what you're talking about. And that's again, that's, that comes back to consumerism, right? And yeah. the idea of I'm using a film and I could do that even with the Darden brothers movies or Terrence Malick's movies or Tarkovsky, right? I can go into it using it to try to be somehow more spiritual or like even feel better about myself. Like, look at me, I watched this cool art house movie and now I'm right. intellectual. Sure. Yeah. Um, or 
I can go into a movie again with hospitality and reception and being willing to receive it. And so I think of prayer actually more like Simone Weil thinks of prayer as attention mm. and mm -hmm. linking those things together. And prayer is this act of receptivity of opening myself up to the possibility of something outside of myself that reveals itself to me rather than me trying to manipulate or create uh, some sort of spiritual experience for myself. And yet, and this is part of spiritual disciplines, and I think Simone Weil's understanding of prayer is attention as well, there is a, an active element to this that I actually have to work at right. it. Yeah. Uh, it's not passive of just like, well, whatever, I'll just let the film kind of wash over me, even though that right. might be a, an appropriate posture sometimes. It's more the, the sense of saying, how can I be actively preparing to be passively receiving what the film has for me? And again, this goes back to hospitality. Hospitality isn't like an inactive thing. It's receiving someone. And it actually takes a lot of work sometimes like mm -hmm. to prepare your house to yeah. host someone. But in that, it's still also kind of this passive receptive mode of I'm doing this for the benefit of the other person, not for myself. And I am just willing to receive them as they are yeah, um, and open to that rather than trying to manipulate the situation to make it how I want it to be. Right. Um, so in that sense, like film can be a preparatory space for prayer, even in a very like, like actually more than just Vey or Merton, but like in a, like just a prayerful posture, mm -hmm. it can help us actually grow in understanding what prayer is outside of those filmic experiences mm -hmm. um, and can help us become more aware and attuned to how to be more prayerful in our everyday world, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, film viewing becomes even a spiritual discipline mm -hmm. uh, or even, again, sacramental. Uh, it's a place where I encounter God, um, the mystery of God, and yet through these practices that I've gone through mm -hmm. um, that are fairly deliberate. So, I'm thinking sort of as this last question. If someone's, I'm thinking of our listeners who maybe listened to this episode and like didn't know any of these directors, hadn't yeah. heard someone talk about um, mise-en-scene or a lot of those things. And if someone's kind of listened to this and is intrigued in terms of going deeper or watching film in maybe a more critical, maybe self-aware way. Um, mm. Yes. What kind of next steps could someone take who maybe hasn't watched something from the Criterion Collection yeah. or um, read Film Comment or something, where would you direct people who just said, hey, how I mean, do I... Watch the Criterion Collection. Okay, yeah, yeah like, you know, that, that's it. Subscribe. Right, right. Yeah, subscribe to the Criterion <laughs> Unintentional Channel. Unintentional commercial for the Criterion Channel. Yeah, or um, something I did growing up, like when I was... So again, I'm not like a... My, my entry into film criticism and film scholarship was fairly much... Like I was just an amateur who in college just watched like I was just this voracious viewer mm -hmm. just watched movie after movie after movie um, and one thing that helped me in that was finding curated lists uh, or best you know best films that have been uh, that have won awards so I watched all the best picture winners every Oscar that had ever won best mm -hmm. picture and just mm -hmm. worked my way through that um, and then I started finding the lists from Sight and Sound uh, which is a magazine by the British Film Institute that every 10 years has a best of movie mm -hmm, list mm -hmm. uh, that are curated by film critics. And 2022, they'll come out with one um, sometime this year. I was not asked to be a part of it, 
um, because I am not cool enough, apparently, to be asked to be a sight and sound not participant. Yet. Once yet, your book yeah. gets out there. Yeah, someday, someday. That's yeah, 10 more years. Yeah. Uh, then maybe I can make it. Um, but that's a great list of just here these 250 some odd films from all around the world that people who love film. Um, and that's the thing. So side yeah. note on this about film critics. So I'm a film critic as well, right? I write film criticism for different publications. I have my own website. Um, I can change the Rotten Tomato score to go up or down or whatever. Um, sometimes film critics get a bad rap for being like film critics are just meanie heads who hate films and want to show you what's bad about them. And even the idea of like criticism, nobody likes to be criticized. So it sounds inherently negative. But every film critic I know is a film critic because they love movies, like with a, such a almost like an obsessive, addictive type of a thing. So finding film mm -hmm. critics that you respect and enjoy and resonate with their thinking sensibility and, yeah, yeah and reading their reviews so roger ebert was that for me um but other film critics when christianity today the magazine was um they used to do film criticism and i wrote a few things for them um but film critics uh that were employed there that are now writing elsewhere mm -hmm. um so Alyssa wilkinson who is a professor at king's college in mm -hmm. new york rice for vox, uh, rice for vox yeah. is a brilliant film critic um, and is a Christian, um, but she's writing in a quote unquote secular sphere or secular space for Vox. Uh, but it's just a good writer too. And like, I appreciate her perspectives and just learned a lot about film criticism from reading her, um, reading people like Jeffrey Overstreet, who's up at Seattle Pacific university. Uh, and again, who's now become, you know, kind of a, a friend or a, a, a fellow film lover that I know. Um, and the, yeah, those types of relationships, uh, with film critics where you just kind of follow along and see what they have to say. And they'll point out things that you might not have ever chosen to watch, right? Like mm -hmm. they see something good that's not on your radar at all. And that's that expanding of the horizons or expanding of one's tastes. It's trying different uh, films that you would never have seen before. It's just kind of knowing where to go to look. And critics can be a great resource for saying, hey, this is something I have tried before. And you should try it too. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you like it, sometimes you don't. But then you're learning how to define your own tastes. And yeah. again, you're expanding your horizons in your experiences of film. Yeah, I think that defining one's own tastes and sensibilities is important because maybe it's bad to be a cultural Philistine, but it's also bad to be a cultural snob, yeah. right? We might yes. say. And so like for people who are interested in film, it doesn't mean you have to like, just because you and I enjoy Tarkovsky and Malik doesn't mean that like that's you know that even this particular kind of parable way of approaching a film is how you have to how you have to go about it I mean for yeah. me I think maybe in college I thought in a little more like oh I only watch good movies or I only watch serious movies but then I saw I, I referenced earlier some of these films with King who I like it's from a a Chinese martial arts genre called wuxia film which is like hero or crouching tiger and I think I literally just saw hero um enjoyed this film and started trying to find out more about like, Oh, what genre is this? Mm -hmm. And so uh, it, for me, it's been kind of discovering just a genre I like. And sometimes that genre gets a really kind of highbrow sort of spin. And sometimes it gets kind of more of a lowbrow kind of spin. And both those can be enjoyable because you become a, you're attending to a genre, you're attending to something. And so I think that's just something for keep people to keep in mind that importance of developing one's own tastes over time by viewing widely, but also not being afraid to kind of chase down a rabbit hole when you find something that you really like.
Yeah. Like the Dardan brothers. Is, yeah. And the Dardans, I mean, I never would have, most people have never heard of them, right? Like they're, right. and they're just not very well known in America. Um, they've won the Cannes Film Festival twice. Yeah. Like they're it's nice, very esteemed in Belgium and in France. Um, but it just takes, I, I've discovered who they were by reading a list called the arts and faith top 100 films or top 100 spiritually significant films. Um, that I just, I think I Googled like theology or religion and movies. And then this list popped up and the sun was near the top in the top 10, the Darden brothers were there. And that started off this journey that now led to a PhD thesis and, uh, yeah. and a book. Yeah. Um, and I guess an obsession with the Darden brothers, um, because I, I found one of these curated lists um, by, you know, a select group of critics and cinephiles who just loved movies and they had seen these movies and I hadn't, and now I did. And now here I am like talking about it and like, yeah. a, a, like obsessed with the Darden. So I hope viewers seek out the Darden brothers movies, um, even if they're hard to find, uh, and, and just experience that for themselves. Great. Well, thank you for coming on the show today, Joel. Um, He's Joel Mayward. His book is The Darby Dan Brothers Cinematic Parables. We'll put that information um, with the show and maybe some links to where folks can find Joel's writing on the web if they're interested. So thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jay. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.